Wish you weren't hearing an ad right now? Want to get the next episode even sooner? Well, after the show, head to watchnebula.com slash radio. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping us to make even more amazing content. Just go to watchnebula.com slash radio. It really helps us out. After a two-week trial, a Wisconsin jury acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse for shooting three people, killing two, during a racial justice protest in Kenosha. The Kenosha protest started after a white police officer shot Jacob Black. Mass protests then broke out in Kenosha, Wisconsin. At the time, Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old from Illinois who traveled to Kenosha after right-wing social media accounts called on people to protect the city from riots. I am an EMT. If you are injured, come to me. Rittenhouse acted in the midst of a chaotic protest where many people were legally carrying guns. Bystander videos show that the three men that Rittenhouse shot had been in confrontations with him. Rittenhouse has now been found not guilty on all six counts arising from his conduct that day. We the jury find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. So what happened at the Rittenhouse trial? Why did the jury conclude that he was not guilty? Is it a travesty of justice or a defensible outcome? There's no dispute that Rittenhouse killed two men and injured a third, but as we talk about often on this channel, that's not the end of the analysis. And here it was only the beginning. Many people thought that when Kyle Rittenhouse admitted on the stand that he intentionally used deadly force on Rosenbaum and Huber, that was a huge tactical blunder. But intentional use of deadly force is exactly the thing that is privileged when you meet the requirements of self-defense. And this case hinged on whether self-defense applied or not. And more so than most self-defense cases, this case turned on the nuances of both self-defense law and criminal procedure. It's not surprising to me that both sides got lots of stuff legally wrong. So let's talk about the law of self-defense in Wisconsin, because every state has different self-defense laws. And in Wisconsin, self-defense, like many other states, is an affirmative defense. In other words, the defendant has the burden of producing some evidence. They must put forth some evidence from which a jury can find that self-defense applied. This is generally called the burden of production. But then, once the defense has made this relatively minimal burden, the burden of proof then returns to the prosecution, which must disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest standard in all of law. Now, every state has self-defense law that basically says a person who is not the aggressor is justified in using deadly force against an adversary when he or she reasonably believes that they're in imminent danger of death or serious bodily injury. Now, jurors aren't lawyers, so juries receive jury instructions that include all the law that they will need to decide a case, hopefully written in plain English. The lawyers and the judge fight over the jury instructions, which will be the only law that the jurors receive in that particular case. Now, it, it is supposed to accurately summarize the law that the jurors are applying. And as you can imagine, the language of the jury instructions is extremely important. The Rittenhouse jury instructions summarize the requirements for self-defense in Wisconsin as, the defendant believed that there was an actual or imminent unlawful interference with the defendant's person, and the defendant believed that the amount of force the defendant used or threatened to use was necessary to prevent or terminate the interference and the defendant's beliefs were reasonable. The defendant may intentionally use force which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm only if the defendant reasonably believed that the force used was necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself. Now, in a situation like this, a reasonable belief doesn't mean true. One can have a reasonable belief but still be mistaken. Reasonableness is determined from the standpoint of the defendant in the situation at issue, not after the fact. 
And as an aside, the law of self-defense gets slightly more complicated when you're applying it to different varieties of homicide and manslaughter because the mental state required is different for each of those offenses. But you can read the jury instructions themselves and see how the court modified the general rules that apply to self-defense to apply to each of the different charges in this case. It's all written down in relatively plain English and it's worthwhile. You might be on a jury someday and you might be faced with similar jury instructions. Now, Wisconsin doesn't have what's called a duty to retreat. In other words, Wisconsin law doesn't require someone whose life is in danger to exercise all opportunities to flee before resorting to deadly force. But jurors can consider whether someone tried to move away from danger as they assess the reasonableness of a self-defense claim. Juries are still allowed to consider whether the defendant had an opportunity to retreat to determine whether or not it was necessary to use deadly force in self-defense. And Wisconsin law doesn't quite go as far as stand your ground states, which remove any consideration of de-escalating or fleeing before resorting to deadly force. However, as we'll talk about later, Wisconsin does have a duty to retreat where the person provokes the attack against them. Now, at common law, a majority of jurisdictions required a duty to retreat before being allowed to engage in deadly force in self-defense. But today, a duty to retreat is required in only a minority of US states. Here is a duty to retreat instruction from Massachusetts. Quote, a person cannot lawfully act in self-defense unless he or she has exhausted all other reasonable alternatives before resorting to force. A person may use physical force in self-defense only if he or she could not get out of the situation in some other way that was available and reasonable at the time. The Commonwealth, that is the state of Massachusetts, may prove the defendant did not act in self-defense by proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant resorted to force without using avenues of escape that were reasonably available and which could not have exposed the defendant to further danger. Again, that's the law of Massachusetts and it's not the law of Wisconsin. And it should go without saying that the Kenosha jury was applying the law of Wisconsin at the time. And we'll talk about the implications of this particular aspect of Wisconsin law in a second. But the final nuance of self-defense at issue is that of provocation. A person who provokes an attack cannot claim legal self-defense, but it's more complicated than just that. The Wisconsin law on provocation states, a person who engages in unlawful conduct of a type likely to provoke others to attack him or her, and thereby does provoke an attack, is not entitled to claim the privilege of self-defense against such attack, except when the attack which ensues is of a type causing the person engaging in the unlawful conduct to reasonably believe that he or she is in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. Okay, so let's break down this law on provocation, which is an exception to the exception of self-defense, which is an exception to the ability to use deadly force against someone. So let's say you engage in unlawful conduct likely to provoke others. Well, then you can't claim self-defense, except that you can if your provocation causes others to use effectively deadly force against you. Now, we'll get back to this in a second, but the law continues. In such a case where the provoked attacker uses deadly force against the provoker, the person engaging in the unlawful conduct is privileged to act in self-defense, but the person is not privileged to resort to the use of force intended or likely to cause death to the person's assailant, unless the person reasonably believes that he or she has exhausted every other reasonable means to escape from or otherwise avoid death or great bodily harm at the hands of his or her assailant. So here, you only get to use deadly force to resist the deadly force that you provoked if you exercise a duty to retreat. Wisconsin law stipulates that the provocateur must attempt every other reasonable option to escape, avoid, or prevent the attack before resorting to deadly force if they were the ones that provoked the 
secondary attack. Now, we'll talk about the general law of self-defense and whether it applies under the factual circumstances as we know them in a second. But first, I wanna talk about the exception of provocation because a number of people believe that Kyle Rittenhouse provoked the attacks themselves and, and therefore couldn't use the uh, privilege of self-defense, that by brandishing a firearm or placing himself in the situation, he provoked the attack. Now, there's three issues here. First, is there unlawful conduct? Did Kyle Rittenhouse engage in unlawful conduct that could constitute provocation and therefore prevent the defense of self-defense? Well, Judge Schroeder granted defense motions to dismiss the two misdemeanor charges against Rittenhouse. I think a lot of people put too much emphasis on those lesser included offenses. The charges were for possessing a dangerous weapon as a minor and a misdemeanor charge for breaking curfew. And arguably Wisconsin law has an exception that allows minors to possess shotguns and rifles as long as they're not short barreled. But more importantly, provocation requires unlawful conduct of a type likely to provoke others. Now, even if those two lesser included charges had stuck, they might not have been sufficient to rise to the level of provocation, mainly because Wisconsin is an open carry state. Mere open carry of a firearm is A, not unlawful, and B, possibly not the type likely to lead to provoking others. Now, I'm oversimplifying here. This is a highly fact-specific analysis, but it's not unreasonable that someone might not find that the gun possession, qua gun possession, didn't lead to provocation. Think about it. Is it the possession of the gun that provokes the uh, attack or is it the possession of a gun by a minor or uh, possession of a gun that crossed state lines that leads to someone uh, provoking an attack? If you think it's the former, well, that's not illegal and the latter probably doesn't provoke an attack. No one says, oh, the reason I'm attacking you is that you're a minor with a firearm, not that you're carrying a firearm in the first place. And additionally, breaking curfew probably couldn't be the requisite predicate because lots of people were breaking curfew and it wasn't leading to mass provocation. Now, it's a closer call when you consider Rittenhouse admitted that he pointed his gun at the victims and claimed that when he was pointing his gun, it wasn't a dangerous provocation. Now, you could argue that pointing your gun at someone is assault or misuse of a firearm, but that probably doesn't work uh, if the reason that you're pointing the gun at someone in the first place is for the purposes of self-defense. And in fact, there are Wisconsin cases to this effect. Though, on the other, other hand, Wisconsin courts have an interesting history in analyzing the provocation exception. For example, in a 1975 Wisconsin Supreme Court case, the court held that a defendant was a provocateur by virtue of openly bringing a gun into a tavern. The Wisconsin Supreme Court held, quote, the defendant himself testified that after being slapped, he went out to his car, got his shotgun, loaded it, and returned to the tavern. As he was entering the tavern, he was grabbed from the side by someone, and he pushed that person away. He saw Freddie Jones start toward him, and he started shooting. He stopped after four shots, and after Jones was out of sight. The defendant requests that the court grant him a new trial in the interest of justice. We find no merit to this contention. When the defendant left the tavern, got his shotgun out of the trunk, loaded it and returned to the tavern, he became the provoker. Additionally, there's an 1883 Wisconsin Supreme Court case that says, quote, if one points a loaded gun at another and the other grapples with him to prevent the shooting and is shot, it is murder. And this is especially important in the context of the Rittenhouse shooting. Even Rittenhouse's testimony seems to indicate that Rosenbaum didn't lunge at Rittenhouse until he raised his gun at Rosenbaum and that the reason, or at least one of the reasons that Kyle Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum is that he feared that Rosenbaum would take his gun away and use it against him. And we'll talk about that in a second. And obviously you'd have to run a provocation analysis in every instance where Kyle Rittenhouse used deadly force. It's not a one size fits all. You have to look at every instance individually. And if the jury had found that there was nothing unlawful that led to provocation, or if there were illegal things going on, those weren't the ones that were leading to the provocation, 
Their analysis to this exception probably would have ended there and they would have found that provocation didn't apply. It's only where there is provocation do we get to the next questions. But assuming that that first hurdle had been met, you get to the next one, imminent danger. Even when someone provokes an attack, they can regain the right to use deadly force where that person reasonably believes that he is in imminent danger of death or bodily harm, and he may lawfully act in self-defense. Since this is essentially the same standard as self-defense in the first instance, given that the jury must have thought Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense, they probably would have found that this exception to the exception to the exception applied, even if they got to this question. And so, if they got over those two first hurdles, they then would have had to get over the third hurdle, which is the duty to retreat. That's the final issue in terms of whether provocation can apply, and assuming the first two hurdles are met. The third clause says that the person who provokes the attack cannot use or threaten force unless he believes that he has exhausted all other opportunities to escape. If the jury got to this question, they could have felt that he had no choice under the circumstances. We don't know. And one of the prior issues might have precluded even getting to this question. But if the jury did reach this question, then they felt that Kyle Rittenhouse either had no opportunity to escape or had exhausted all of those opportunities. If that's the case, whether Wisconsin had a general duty to retreat might not have changed the overall outcome here anyway. Anyone who says that this is a simple case of self-defense or that it's cut and dry is definitely wrong. But so far we've talked about the exception to the exception, that is provocation. Let's now talk about whether the original exception, self-defense, applied or could reasonably have applied in this particular case. Let's talk about the facts as we know them from the trial. Now, warning, these videos are graphic, but let's talk about what the relatively uncontested testimony and these videos shows. Rittenhouse and his friend Dominic Black testified that they went to Kenosha to protect a car dealership called CarSource. The two owners of the dealership told jurors that they never asked anyone to protect CarSource. During the protest, a small group of eight to nine people were gathered at the dealership. Kyle Rittenhouse that night was separated from the rest of his group and jogged towards one of the car source parking lots. Kyle Rittenhouse apparently sees Joshua Zeminski is nearby armed with a pistol. Rittenhouse continues to run towards car source. Rosenbaum chases Kyle Rittenhouse. Rosenbaum throws a plastic bag behind Kyle Rittenhouse, which lands on the ground. A shot is fired from someone else about a hundred feet away. Kyle Rittenhouse turns around and stops as he gets to some parked cars and shoots the unarmed Rosenbaum four times in quick succession, once in the back. Kyle Rittenhouse then runs away from the scene. A loose crowd starts to follow Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse trips, falls to the ground, sits upright, and points his gun at one person who backs away. He shoots at a man who does sort of a half jump kick but backs away after the shot. At roughly the same time, Anthony Huber hits Kyle Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Rittenhouse fires a shot. Huber picks up his skateboard and runs away. Another shot is fired in either the direction of Huber or Gage Grouskreutz. Huber drops to the ground. Grouskreutz then puts his hands up while armed with a pistol. As he's making a move toward or to the side of Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse then fires at Grosskreutz, hitting him once in the bicep. Now, this is, of course, a hopefully neutral oversimplification. There are a lot of other facts. But at base, this is a confusing and charged situation, even with video footage. And it's not an easy case in either direction. So, was this self-defense? You can look at those facts and see a murder. You can look at those facts and find self-defense. Two diametrically opposed beliefs can both be reasonable at the same time. There are a ton of open questions here. Was the use of force proportionate in every encounter? Was the use of force reasonable in every encounter? Did Rittenhouse provoke any of those reactions? 
but the videos and testimonies show a chaotic situation and people acting quickly. Now, no blanket assertions can be made. You have to run the self-defense analysis for each incident individually, including the shots fired at the people that weren't Rosenbaum, Huber, or Grosskreutz. With the provocation argument aside, one might look at these incidents in question and decide that they were self-defense. After all, in the latter two incidents, Kyle Rittenhouse was fending off what was arguably an attack with a skateboard, and in another, the man admitted he drew a gun on Rittenhouse. But one might also reasonably conclude that one or more of these incidents were not self-defense and were therefore murder. After all, in the first incident, Rosenbaum, an unarmed man, threw a bag of clothes at Rittenhouse, which didn't land anywhere near Rittenhouse, after which Rittenhouse points his gun at him, and then Rosenbaum moves at Rittenhouse, or apparently towards the gun, and Rittenhouse shoots him four times, once in the back. And yes, I'm aware of Rittenhouse's self-serving testimony about the preceding incidents. What I'm saying is that reasonable minds can differ. And Rittenhouse also shoots at, but misses the unarmed armed jump kick man. And the latter incidents involving Grosskreutz and Huber happen perhaps a few hundred feet away from several dozen police officers. It's not surprising that the people who pursued Rittenhouse thought he was an active shooter who needed to be stopped. But the only question in this particular case was whether Rittenhouse's actions could possibly have been reasonable. Because remember, the standard is that the jury must find that there is no reasonable doubts that it wasn't self-defense. It's possible, if not probable, that both Rittenhouse and the people he killed were simultaneously acting in self-defense. The fog of war is a real thing. Uh, reasonable beliefs can be mistaken. The jury was accurately, based on the law, told that they had to determine whether Rittenhouse's belief was reasonable based on the circumstances. And this reminds me of the story of Gabby Giffords and Joe Zamudio. When Giffords was shot at a political rally, Joe Zamudio, who was legally armed, came running to help when he heard the gunfire that injured Gabby Giffords and killed six others in Tucson. By the time that Zamudio came to the scene, unarmed civilians had already tackled and disarmed the perpetrator. Zamudio later said that in his confusion, he was within seconds of shooting one of the people that was helping, not the shooter himself. This is an issue that champions of Rittenhouse should grapple with. If Rosenbaum or Huber or Grosskreutz had killed Kyle Rittenhouse, they might have been justified in using self-defense under the law. Again, reasonable minds might differ on this, but any system that incentivizes rule by the last person standing, that is, killing the only person who might dispute your claim of self-defense, that seems, well, suboptimal. Um, to this point that, that my notes simply say, uh, vigilantism is bad. Um, and I, I stand by that. Uh, I also worry that that is becoming a controversial position. Net, net, bringing guns to a protest is bad. Anyone that brings it, not just Kyle Rittenhouse. But there's a large strain of people that simply say that Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have been there, and that's the reason that he can't use self-defense. And by most accounts, Kyle Rittenhouse meets the definition of a vigilante. But whether Kyle Rittenhouse should have been there in the first place isn't relevant to the questions of whether he legally met the definition of self-defense in the first place. Just simply possessing a gun by itself doesn't prevent the application of self-defense. And there are, of course, larger social issues here as well. Many have claimed that it would have been impossible for a black person to kill two people, injure a third, and fire at a fourth, and live to walk away from the scene, as Rittenhouse did. And then, of course, to be found not guilty. And we can probably evaluate whether this is true or not. One way to look at this is by studying the data on how juries perceive self-defense. A study by John Roman found that homicides with a white perpetrator and a black victim are 10 times more likely to be ruled justified than cases with a black perpetrator and a white victim, and the gap is larger in states with stand-your-ground laws. And after accounting for a variety of confounding factors, such as whether the victim and perpetrator were strangers, the gap is smaller but still significant. Cases with a white perpetrator and black victim are 281% more likely to be ruled justified than cases with a black perpetrator and white victim. But 
systemic issues like that weren't on trial here. You don't adjudicate those kind of systemic issues in a criminal court of one individual. The issue is whether Kyle Rittenhouse engaged in self-defense, or more specifically, whether the prosecution disproved the possibility that he used self-defense. And for what it's worth, there are lots of people who think that Kyle Rittenhouse's actions were not self-defense. There are lots of other reasonable people who think that Kyle Rittenhouse's actions were self-defense. Now, I doubt all of those people in both of those groups watched 100% of the trial, then spent days poring over the jury instructions like the Kenosha jury did. But the thing is, if reasonable people really could conclude that this was self-defense, then it means that the prosecution didn't prove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the definition of reasonable doubt. Now, that being said, an acquittal doesn't mean that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't do it. It doesn't mean that what Kyle Rittenhouse did was right. And the pathology of Kyle Rittenhouse's hagiography uh, is another issue entirely. And it certainly doesn't mean that he did nothing wrong. It just means that the jury didn't think that the prosecution proved self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And while you can't necessarily infer it from the jury's decision, it might be the case that Kyle Rittenhouse did nothing legally wrong. But under the most favorable interpretations of the facts, Kyle Rittenhouse brought gasoline to a match party and people are now dead as a result. He made a bad situation worse. And let's face it, if someone uses non-deadly force against you while you are carrying a gun, it's more likely to turn deadly. Rosenbaum, Jump Kick Man, and arguably Huber used non-deadly force, which would not in the abstract trigger a reasonable belief of imminent harm. Which is not to say that unarmed people can't exercise deadly force or create a reasonable belief of imminent deadly harm. They absolutely can. Indeed, it appears that the jury believed Rittenhouse's testimony that they were going for his gun or grabbed his gun in an attempt to take his gun and use it against him and in a huge stretch in Rittenhouse's speculation, take his gun and use it against others. Now, those arguing that but for Kyle Rittenhouse being present with his gun, these shootings wouldn't have happened are right. However, but for causation, or what we call sin qua non causation, doesn't rise to the level of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It's necessary for a conviction, but it's not sufficient. Now, I've seen lots of people say, quote, the jury reached the right verdict. Now, there is a strong version and a weak version of that statement. The weak version is that the jury was correct to find that there was reasonable doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't use self-defense. However, the strong version is that the jury proactively found him innocent or even a hero. But assuming we're going with the weak version, it's entirely possible that the jury verdict accurately reflects the law of Wisconsin. I've never seen a politician run on a platform of installing a duty to retreat in the law. If Wisconsin had a duty to retreat, the outcome of this case very well might have been different. Stated differently, if this had occurred in Massachusetts, the law could have militated a different result. Though, admittedly, maybe reasonable minds might differ on that as well. Maybe Kyle Rittenhouse retreated at every possible opportunity. But I will leave it to you and by proxy your politicians as to whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. Though I'll point out that for those that are happy that Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty, they should recognize that logically, they should also be in favor of an alternate reality where Gage Grosskreutz shot and killed Kyle Rittenhouse. And remember, if you think that Rosenbaum, Huber, or Grosskreutz all provoked a response from Kyle Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse's use of deadly force probably gave them the right to use deadly force right back under the same laws. Under current Wisconsin law, if Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty by reason of self-defense, Gage Grosskreutz would also have been not guilty if he'd shot and killed Kyle Rittenhouse. And keep in mind that in this scenario, Kyle Rittenhouse is dead and it would have been Grosskreutz setting the narrative. And to the extent that you think Grosskreutz would have crafted his testimony to support an argument of self-defense, then consider that Kyle Rittenhouse probably crafted his story in exactly the same way. So the ultimate takeaway here is that these incidents are murky at best occurred in a jurisdiction with very broad self-defense and firearm laws. 
The prosecution had a very high standard to meet, and while we didn't cover it in this video, the defendant put on a very good defense. The rest, I will leave to you. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash radio. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.